Okay, we got a nice full house here today, which is awesome. I'm curious, are there any parents in the house? Raise your hand. Oh, we got lots of you. Perfect. I'm going to tell you a story, and yours is going to one-up mine by a long shot. So I'm going to ask for someone else. Is there any aunties in the house? Any aunties in the house? Okay, better. More my crowd. Um, uncles in the house? Any uncles? Okay, there we go. I have had the privilege of being an auntie and an uncle um, for 14 years, which is so crazy. My oldest nephew is 14 years old, and I love these things. These things, they're not things. <laughs> I love them. I have nine nieces and nephews, and they're amazing, but they all live really far away. So somewhere along the lines, they haven't taught me everything that I need to know uh, to be a parent um, because they live so far away. And the extent of us is, you know, having one week with them a year or talking to them on FaceTime. Well, a couple summers ago, I decided Edgar and I needed to have a parenting experience. Just kidding. I didn't actually decide that. I just wanted to bless my sister and brother-in-law who had two little girls, and I was trying to bribe them to come out to visit us in Nanaimo, which really, you shouldn't have to bribe your family to come visit you in Nanaimo when they're from Winnipeg, right? <laughs> That's right. Really, no bribing should have happened. But there was bribing that happened. So I bribed my sister and brother-in-law to come visit us in August in Nanaimo, where there's no mosquitoes, where it's not plus 45, where, you know, there's ocean breezes close by. And I said, if you come to Nanaimo, you and your husband can have a night away in a hotel on your dime. And Edgar and I, <laughs> I had to clear that up. Edgar and I will look after your two little girls. Well, that was it. That was the turning point. They were coming. They were sold. They booked their flights right away. They had not had a night away together since their children were born. And their oldest was just over three, three and a half or so. And, um, and so they were so excited to come visit us. I think they only came for that incentive, to be honest. Um, and we had had a, they came and flew over it. We had a great visit with them. We were bonding with their little girls, having so much fun with them. And then it was approaching the night for the parents' getaway. And the parents, they were like, they were counting down the minutes. And, um, and I thought, this is good. We'll, you know, this will be great. I got prepped ahead of time, what to do, how to do it, their schedule, all those things. I thought, this will be a good trial run for Edgar and I. We've only had a dog to raise, and he turned out okay, but children are different, I hear. <laughs> Not that different, if you ask Caesar Milan, but... <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, and so then um, it comes up to the night where we um, are saying goodbye to the parents, and um, they go off in one car, and then me and Edgar take the little two girls in our car, and then all of a sudden the three-year-old realizes mommy and daddy aren't coming with them, and so she, who's normally a very happy little girl, all of a sudden gets a somber look, and she goes, where's mommy and daddy? And so in anti-panic world, I thought, what is the fastest thing that makes a kid happy and not think about their parents? And um, so I looked at Edgar, and I said, who cares about our supper plans? We're going to McDonald's. <laughs> and I looked back at Juliet. I'm like, Juliet, do you like McDonald's? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, do you like Happy Meals? She's like, yeah. We're going to get Happy Meals. So thank you for turning me down. Um, 
Um, so <laughs> we went to McDonald's, we bought the girls Happy Meals, and we started playing in this pl massive play structure, and uh, they soon forgot about their parents and who they were, which was excellent. <laughs> Mission accomplished. We then get back to the house, and this is where the bedtime routine starts. And my sister had prepped me for the bedtime routine. The oldest one, she's potty trained, but she had this thing with going number two. She didn't like going in the toilet. She still liked going in a diaper. And so she, my sister said, just put the diaper on, you know, after dinner sometime so that she has time to go before she goes to bed and you can change it before she sleeps. So I'm like, okay, no problem. So we get to the house. I put on the diaper. Apparently I hadn't put it on a diaper since I was 13 because I put the first one on backwards. But, uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was like, wow, these are really show off a lot of weird things on, anyways. <laughs> we got that figured out. <laughs> and um, anyways, put her in the diaper and um, we were getting them ready, watching Paw Patrol, calming them down, things like that. It was all good. And then all of a sudden, the oldest one, um, she goes away somewhere. So I go to follow her, and I'm like, hey, Juliet, where are you going? And she looks at me very serious and says, Auntie, go play with Lily. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> oh, I get it. She wants her privacy. The, the number two is coming. And so I was like, Perfect. This is so easy. This is like clockwork. Oh my goodness. So I'm like, okay, see you later. So I go get the little one and I'm thinking, oh, it's time for her bedtime anyway. She's one years old. And so I start, I get her and I'm telling her, hey, Julia's just doing her business. I'm going to go bring the little one upstairs, um, put her to bed. So I start putting the little one to bed, and it's like, this is almost like going too good. Like, this is such a good night that I'm like, wow. Like, Edgar and I are going to be the best parents ever because, like, children just behave when they're around us. It's amazing. So, <laughs> and so I'm putting the little one to sleep, and she just is goes out like a wink. I'm like, wow. But my sister says rock her for about another 10 minutes just to make sure that she's actually asleep before you put her down. I did that. All of a sudden, I hear the little, the older one, Juliet, start running up the stairs and Uncle Edgar saying, oh, it's okay, Juliet. Auntie will be out right away. She's just putting Lily down. So I knew this is my escape. I need to escape before she bulldozes that door open and wakes up her little sister. So I go, run outside the door, close the door behind me. Edgar had raced to the top of the stairs. Is holding Juliet, passes her to me. And I'm like, oh, and then says, smell my arm. <laughs> I smell his arm. I'm like, what is that? Oh my goodness. So it, it just, nothing had leaked out. It was just such a potent smell. So I'm like, let's go take care of this. I go downstairs um, and uh, realize the whole entire house is wafting of this beautiful aroma. And uh, we have to deal with this fast. And so we go. <laughs> I go, lay her down on the couch, think Paw Patrol's the answer to everything. Here, Juliet, just watch Paw Patrol while I change your diaper. I go to change her diaper, and everything's fine until I go for the wipe. And it was the most blood-curdling scream I have ever heard a child make. No! And I was like, oh my goodness, what is happening? And I realized she's, you know, red, it was hot, and that, like, that day, and she had gotten some form of rash, diaper rash, and it was bad. And she was not having me 
fix her up. And I'm like, so she starts kicking and flailing and screaming. And this is like, this is like a lot of stuff in her diaper that you don't want to get kicked and flailed all over the place. So I'm like, no, 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 Juliet, stop, please, please stop. It's, it's going to get everywhere. Don't worry. She's crying, screaming at me. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. And I'm thinking like, this is a consent issue. I don't think I can <laughs> proceed. <laughs> like, she can say, there's nothing wrong with this situation. I feel so awkward. I'm her auntie, not her mom. And so I'm like, oh dear. And so I'm like, oh, sweetheart, I'm so sorry, but I need, I need to get this off you. It'll feel better when it's off you. There's no reasoning with a three-year-old at this point. And she's just screaming at me, no, no, no. And I'm like, she's kicking and failing and things are going on my arm and things are <laughs> going places. And I'm like, oh, please stop. And she's crying and I'm like begging her to stop. And it's not working no matter how hard I begged. And I said, okay, it's okay, Juliet. I won't do anything else. And, and I'm like, I won't do anything else. Okay, I won't. I won't. And then Edgar is coming to my rescue trying to help me, but I'm just frantic and panicking. And I don't know. I'm thinking, like, if she's saying no to me, I don't want to bring Uncle involved and, you know, kind of thing. And, um, and then he's like, do you need help? And I'm like, I need help, but I don't know what I need help with. And I'm like, fill the, I'm like, I know, get the hose. <laughs> Go, get the hose. He said, like, why do you need me to get the hose? <laughs> I'm like, because she won't let me touch her. I need a hose down outside. <laughs> Edgar was the voice of reason in this moment. <laughs> I'm not gonna get the hose. <laughs> and you are not hosing down your niece outside. <laughs> Social services will come. <laughs> moment. And so I was like, well, I don't know what to do. And so I thought to myself, we had had a bath earlier. Bath time went really well. She liked bath time. So I was like, Juliet, it's time for bath. I bring out the stairs. I bring her, um, put her in the bathtub, but she um, was onto my tricks and knew what I was trying to do and did not want to go in the bathtub. And she just went completely stiff-legged. <laughs> and I thought, if I put her down while she's stiff-legged, I have to put her face down, and that's another issue. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm not forcing this kid. And <laughs> I'm like, just begging her, please, just <laughs> please let me wipe you. <laughs> and so eventually, I was just splashing her <laughs> with water, hoping that the water would get on her. And then she's like, she's been crying. I'm ready to cry. <laughs> and I, I, I say, and she's like, Auntie, I don't want a bath. I'm like, okay, sweetheart, let's get you out of the bath. And so I go wrap a towel around her, and I just sit her on my lap, and I'm hoping the combination between the water that I splashed on her and her just kind of moving on my lap will somehow do the magic of wiping this thing. <laughs> and this has been going on for over an hour. I'm I'm like, you know, out of options here. I refuse to call my sister because she is having a night away with her hubby. There is no way I'm ruining that. She'll never come visit again. <laughs> and so I, um, I think, what can I do? I text my friend Caitlin, who's a nurse, pediatric nurse, and I think, what can I do for a very bad diaper rash that involves a child that will not let me wipe her? And uh, she said, oh, I can bring some Tylenol over and some really heavy-duty hospital-grade diaper rash miracle healing cream. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, that sounds amazing. So I texted my sister, asked her if I could give her child Tylenol. <laughs> and she asked why. And I told her, no reason. <laughs> so 
said, don't worry about it. Just enjoy your honeymoon. <laughs> and, um, and then <laughs> my friend Caitlin came over. And by this time, the kid was so exhausted. Like, she had been fighting tooth and nail for so long. She was so tired. And so Kate, Kate, I held her head and just talked to her nicely. And she let Caitlin do her thing. And she was just ready to fall asleep on the couch. And so we diaper her back up and, you know, lay her down to bed. And um, that night, I went to bed. And I just remember replaying the events in my head, like a trauma scenario <laughs> that I never wanted to walk through again. And I just looked at Edgar and I was like, just please hold me. <laughs> and um, that was one of those moments where I just felt like no matter what I did, no matter how good I thought I could come up with a solution, it wasn't going to work. Like nothing was going to work in my favor. And um, every the more I tried to do something right, it was like the more I messed up. And it was like the more, the worse things got. And I often think of that story uh, when I'm working with people and thinking like, you know, that that is actually how probably a lot of us feel, um, you know, in certain situations that despite our best efforts, sometimes it just still feels like we're, it's not enough. Where we're the, in those moments where our best efforts don't quite cut it and we need something else. We need someone else. We need a rescuer, an intervention, a heavy-duty, miracle-working, hospital-grade diaper ash cream number. <laughs> and... Um, uh, and it's so hard when we get to that point where we realize we, we can't do this on our own. We can't do this um, at all. And some of you guys may actually feel like that right now. You may feel like you are in a drowning scenario, that you're barely keeping your head up this summer or this year or in this season of parenting or in this decade. And some of us are in those places because of our own doings and the choices and mistakes that we've made that have had repercussions and consequences. But also maybe some of us, you know, I'm going to look over here for a second. For instance, maybe some of us chose to watch Netflix instead of study for our finals. And that resulted in having to redo some courses or maybe summer school, which I never hear about anyone taking summer school here. So I don't know if it even exists. But in Manitoba, summer school is a thing. Um, you know, some of it could be from our own, our own choices. Um, and some of those things could be more serious consequences we're facing because of, you know, because of other big choices that we've made or mistakes that we've made that have had larger consequences. Or maybe we feel like that we're in the spot of desperation simply because of circumstances that are completely out of our control. And life circumstances have led us to this point. Maybe it's juggling your family and work life that's always at odds with each other and you feel like you're drowning and failing at both of them. Maybe it's walking through a tough season in your marriage where there's lots of tension at home and there's just you're never able to find the peace. Maybe it's walking through a tough season with a rebellious child and no matter what you've done, you can't seem to get them on the path that you know is good for them. Maybe it's walking in a season of wanting to be married, but it hasn't happened yet. Maybe it's fighting an addiction that you thought you had kicked a long time ago, but it has shown its ugly head again. Or maybe it's watching a loved one relapse with an addiction that you thought that they had kicked a long time ago, but here it is again. 
Maybe it was losing a job that you really needed to help pay the bills. Maybe it's hearing a family member's diagnosis is back and worse than ever this time. I don't know your situation, but I know that most of us at some point in life have hit that place where we know that our best efforts just aren't enough and we need something or someone else. I'm, I'm going to presume that we've all been in those situations or that we all, many of us are in those situations. I imagine that's how the people in Isaiah, Isaiah's time were. Left, maybe they didn't realize it all the time, but left to their own efforts, their own sinful desires, they became a mess of a people and in many ways, they caused a lot of their own misery by the choices that they were making. And like Pastor Darcy said, the prophet Isaiah had to call them out on their stuff. Isaiah's mission was to call the people of Judah to repentance and to change. It's interesting to note that throughout the book of Isaiah, that that wasn't the only thing Isaiah was prophesying. Isaiah didn't only call people out on their poop, but he needed to do that. I needed to insert the word poop in light of our <laughs> earlier story. Um, but he needed to do that, but he also prophesied of what was to come. More importantly, who was to come. He prophesied of the game changer that would one day turn their lives upside down. Isaiah is actually considered one of the most Jesus-centered books in the entire Old Testament. Over and over and over again, Isaiah points towards the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus that would change the world forever. The coming of Israel's rescuer, the redeemer, the one that they needed. Turn with me to Isaiah 7 verse 14. And it says, I think it will be up on the screen. Yep, perfect. All right then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah is littered with those tough words to read. Not these tough words, but with tough words to read. But there is also a, a theme of hope all throughout those tough words. Tough stuff does not equate to the absence of hope. You need to know that this morning. Tough stuff does not equate to the absence of hope. But often, it's actually quite the opposite. And in tough stuff, and in tough times, that is where you need to find your hope the most. This is where hope makes a grand entrance into the scene. Here you have these people who have made a mess by trying to fill their own voids with idol worship and have become rebellious children when left to their own efforts. Announcing that God was promising to come and be with his people certainly was the announcement of the ultimate hope that humanity would ever know. But unfortunately, the fulfillment of this prophecy would not come for another 700 years for the Israelite people. But fortunately for us, that day is already here. And it's been here for a long time. It's not Christmas, and I won't try to take Pastor Darcy's Christmas story away from him. Even though Pastor Darcy thinks it's okay to sing Christmas, singing Christmas tree songs in July. So I think I should be okay to sing Christmas stories in July, but I won't get too into that. But I'll just summarize this for you. Regardless of how, many, 
I know many of you know the story, but in case some of you don't, Jesus shows up as a little baby. He grows up, has his ministry, dies a brutal death for our sins, making a new relationship available between us and God and the spirit that empowered Jesus to do his miracles in his ministry to turn this world upside down is now available to empower us as his believers, as his people, as his children. This is the fulfillment of God's promise that he said in Isaiah that God will be with us. This access to God through Jesus' sacrifice meant access to a new covenant and a new type of relationship with God. This meant access to God through his spirit all the time for every believer. That means access, one person got it, to God through his spirit all the time for every believer. Are we living like we have that access? This is hope like I've never heard it. Hope is such a powerful word. The Bible has lots to say about hope. Because hope actually changes the way you think. Hope actually changes your perspective. Hope actually changes your interpretation of events that happen to you when there's hope. And when people lose hope or when they're hopeless, it's a, it can be a scary place for someone. Hope is powerful. And Hebrews says in, six, in chapter 619, this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. An anchor for our souls. I was listening to a pastor uh, preach, and he mentioned this verse, um, Pastor Stephen Furtick, and he says, an anchor gets to the bottom of the ocean and holds on tight even while you're going through a storm. He didn't use the word storm. Even while you're going through hell. That's what he says. An anchor gets to the bottom. It holds on tight even while you're going through hell. That is hope. It hangs on tight. Our hope is anchored on the truth that God is with us. The hope of our redemption is God with us. That's our hope. <clears throat> that hope goes on to say that he cannot abandon us. Because it is completely against his nature, completely against his character, completely against what his name symbolizes and stands for and means, okay? And we have that reminder all the time in the name of Jesus. God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. He's not going anywhere. He will not go anywhere. He can't go anywhere, nor does he want to go anywhere. When you go through hardship, that's where he wants to be going. He wants to be with you in it, okay? He's there with you in it. We just don't always acknowledge that he's there with us in it, okay? He's present there. Some of you might need to be reminded of that today as you have felt like God is distant or that he's gone. But I just want to remind you, he's not. He can't be. It stands against who he is. And my prayer for you today is that you would get a deeper revelation of his presence in your life, that you would experience him in a new way and that you would find comfort in him today. I always want to make it clear to people that when you make a decision to follow Jesus and trust him with your life, that that doesn't mean that there won't be some sort of hardship or trials or all of a sudden life will be dandy. That's not how it works. We live in a fallen world. You don't live in this world for more than 24 hours or so, flip on the news, to realize that bad things happen and they can happen to anyone. But what it does mean is that you never have to go through those hardships alone 
ever again. And no, actually, he wants to be part of that journey. He wants to be right there and walk with you through some of the darkest, hardest, most challenging times of your life. That's what he wants. In Psalms 23, it was standing out to me as I was prepping this message. I kept playing it over in my head, so I'm going to share it with you. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. I want you to look at this next verse and notice the change from third person. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. I read a commenter, and he pointed that out. He pointed out the change to the third person. In the fourth verse, he says that in the darkest part of the verse, that is when David doesn't refer to God as he, but he changes it to you to represent a very close and a very personal relationship between him and the Lord. And that's what he wants. While you go through the hard parts, the darkest part, the Lord is not far off and he wants to be the closest one to you. The closest one to you, meaning the one that you go to first. So the promise of God with us does not mean that you won't walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that you won't walk through trials, but rather if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are not alone and indeed you have a good shepherd to tend to you, to care for you, to comfort you, to protect you. So like I said, some of you may feel like you're walking through a trial right now or going through a difficult season, a challenging one. A season that feels never-ending or endlessly taxing. And you need to be reminded of that. Some of the darkest moments of my life is where I have seen God show up the most in my life. He's there all the time. But in that moment of desperation, when I finally got to the point where I knew I could not do something on my own strength anymore. That I knew I could not get through a scenario without him. And I turned to him. He showed up in a way that I couldn't imagine. And I would have never imagined going through that situation without him. And you know what? That's true for me. But as I talk to people, and I talk to a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people, and people actually talk to me back. It's not just me talking. They talk back. And they tell me their stories, and they tell me their lives. This is, this is what happens to a lot of people, that a lot of people in their darkest times when they have decided to turn to Jesus through them, they have experienced a depth of him, an intimacy with him that they had never experienced before. Moments that we never want to repeat, yet moments where God's presence and strength and love and grace come alive like never before. That's what seems to happen. So Jesus, he comes on the scene. He's the fulfillment of those scriptures. And like John 1 says, he came into our neighborhood. He was born in a stable, grew up being tempted, yet did not cave, and began his ministry that gave leopards, adulterers, and social outcasts a sense of belonging and brought the fulfillment of his name, God with us. Remember, 
Jesus is to be experienced. He's not just meant to be talked about. He wants to experience this life with you. And what we learned from Isaiah last week from Pastor Darcy is that God is more concerned about our heart's relationship with him than our religious knowledge of him. God wants your heart. He wants your heart. Because of what Jesus did, we can come boldly into God's throne room of grace. Come boldly to God, not sheepishly. We can come boldly to him. And it is a throne room of grace, not of judgment or condemnation or shame. A throne room of grace. There's another type of hope that Isaiah brings our attention to. Still directing us to the ultimate hope, the promised Messiah. The book of Isaiah is littered with prophecies of what the Messiah will do and be like and go through. And I want to bring your attention over to Isaiah chapter 11, which stood out to me in a way that never had quite before. So read with me. Isaiah 11, you don't have to say it out loud, but (laughs) Isaiah 11, 1 verse 5. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bring fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like a garment. It's talking about Jesus again. But I'm going to read verse 1. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. These verses foretell the truth that Israel is going to be chopped down and left like a stump. The stump will be burned down, but after all that burning, that what will be left is a holy seed that will survive into the future. That's the evidence of hope yet again. That holy seed is once again their Messiah to come. It's the ultimate hope that says there will one day be fruit again, even if something is cut down to a stump. I was listening to a sermon um, by Elevation Church Um, that really stood out to me and he actually spoke on that one verse just the one verse for the whole sermon and he mentions he says when you are cut down to a stump meaning when you're down to nothing remember that God is up to something (laughs) when you're cut down to nothing remember that God is up to something (laughs) this type of hard season being cut down to a stump could be referred to as a pruning season. And even in this intense time of pruning for Israel, the prophecy is that new life will come. The promise is that new life will come. Yesterday, um, I was working on the sermon, and um, not just yesterday, but it went into yesterday. And I was uh, at this part of the message that I decided I needed to get some vitamin D because it was so beautiful out. So I went outside on our deck, and I brought my computer, was typing away, and um, so at least I could feel like I was enjoying the outdoors, and um, all of a sudden, Edgar's beside me, or close to me on the deck, and he says, wow, I can't believe how many apples our apple tree has, even though I pruned it so hard this year, and it was so weird, because he literally said that as I was at this point in the message, 
And I just looked at him and I was like, honey, you're a genius. <laughs> and he's like, what? <laughs> I'm like, you're a genius. I'm like, that fits my sermon perfectly. And then he's like, what? I'm like, tell me why you pruned the tree. <laughs> he's like, what? He's like, I'll like, just tell me why you pruned it. Why did you prune the tree? So he told me his reasons for pruning the tree. And I fact checked them and they're all good reasons. <laughs> So, if you're a gardener, you know this, but I'm not. Egger's my green thumb. Um, you know that pruning is good for the plant. Dead branches hinder the growth of the healthy branches. So, when you prune the tree, you take away some of the less healthy branches. It gives energy and resources to the branches that need it. Otherwise, the branches that aren't going to bear fruit just waste the tree's energy. So, pruning the tree makes the roots stronger and encourages new branches to grow. It also removes any portions that might have disease or fungus and stops it from spreading to the other parts of the tree, which will also help the fruit to grow more plentifully. Also, by pruning it, it allows more light to get into the tree because there's less branches that shade it over and darken it. This is the process of photosynthesis. I looked it up. Okay. With a light, a plant would not be able to produce the energy it needs to grow. And while I read that, I was like, whoa, that's so interesting. Didn't Pastor Darcy just talk last week about being the light? Not letting the darkness overshadow us, but us actually living out being the light. What it is to represent the light of the world. For some of us, the process of letting more light into our lives and living out being the light of this world is the pruning process in our lives that we are experiencing right now. That pruning process that's actually shaping our character and developing more depth in us than we would have happened otherwise. Sometimes these, these seasons, though we never invite them, they tend to be the seasons that we look back on and that we see the most growth in our lives. In fact, most of us learn things the tough way. We actually learn more the hard way and from our failures as people than we do from our successes, which is so weird. But it makes sense. I don't think anyone could convince me that diaper rash is a good thing for children to have. I don't think anyone could convince me that diaper rash is pleasant. After I went through that experience, no matter, even if my mom had told me before the experience, she'd tell you're such a great auntie, and just remember, diaper rash is not fun for kids. It would have not sunk in as much as when I had that experience with my niece. And now I know diaper rash is bad. <laughs> it just sinks in a little more. I, there's a quote that I often hear in our ministry circles that I believe is pretty accurate. Most people don't change until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change by Tony Robbins. Meaning that most of us aren't ready to change because change is hard work. It takes effort. Most of us don't want it until we get so fed up with being where, we at, where we're at. Like most of us, we don't start doing something about our health until we get so sick and tired of being sick and tired. And then we find the motivation to make big lifestyle changes that will help us not feel sick and tired. Am I right? That seems to be the case. <laughs> like I already said, if you live on this earth, stuff will happen. And sometimes it happens because of our own doing and sometimes it just happens because of life's doing. Okay, life just unfolds that way. 
And God in his goodness can use whatever the enemy has tried to use to destroy you and turn it around for good and for his glory and to use you. Okay? He can turn it around. We think that when God says he's going to do something in our lives, that it's always going to be easy. But oftentimes, it's not easy. It's hard. Because growing, with growing comes pains. With growing comes being stretched. And that stretching process doesn't always feel great. But don't worry, because there's hope in hardship. There's hope there of a greater outcome. There's hope that you're not going to be alone while you go through it. And I don't want you to think that you're messed up or that you're weird or that something is wrong with you um, if your life has been difficult. Because I think that's a, that's a false sense of shame that you're carrying. Sometimes life is just difficult. Don't always assume that you're doing something wrong just because something doesn't turn out the way that you thought it should. Don't carry that guilt. Don't carry that shame. I work with teenagers and preteens, so don't get me wrong. Some of us cause our own grief by making poor decisions that happen. But I believe that there's some people here today that are living in some of that unnecessary grief and shame because life has been hard and you keep searching your life to see where it is that you messed up. And I don't know who this is for, but I think it might be for someone. If God hasn't shown you it yet and you've asked him, move on from it. That type of shame and guilt is hurting you, not helping you. Move on from it. Don't carry that. Jesus went to the cross to carry your shame so you don't have to. And Jesus, while he was on earth, he had lots to say um, about the pruning process. And he talks about it in John 15. Um, and I'm just going to skip ahead. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. God wants to come into the hard situations. He's not afraid of them. He's not intimidated by them. In fact, it's often the place that he shows up and is glorified the most because we've reached the end of our capacity and we start tapping into his capacity. If life wasn't sometimes hard, then we would just rely on ourselves and trust in ourselves and in our own strength. And guess what? We weren't meant to do that. We are not enough. But Jesus is enough. And apart from him... I don't know if we want to do something. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And that's an okay place to be. So remember that there's hope in this pruning season and in this, in this pruning process. My philosophy when it comes to hardships and tragedy is that if I'm going to suffer, I don't want it to be for nothing. Okay? I want God to use it. And sometimes him using it is just him growing me through it. And then sometimes him using it is him growing me through it and then helping me to help others grow through it. And those are the testimonies that I love hearing when I see people who have overcome an addiction who are then the ones that are going and helping others who are in, in the face of addiction. I love hearing the testimonies of people who have experienced loss of loved ones, maybe a miscarriage, and then they're the ones going and they're ministering to those with a heart that is so big because they know exactly what it's like to be there. 
That's them allowing God to use their trials, to use their suffering, and use it for good to make a difference, to be the light on this earth. That's beautiful. Paul says in Romans 5, verse 2 to 6, because of your faith, Christ has brought us into the place of undeserving privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation and this hope will not lead to disappointment. This hope will not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. I need you to read number five with me. This hope will not lead to disappointment. Your hope may not lead to disappointment, but it might come from disappointment. Okay? Your hope will not lead to disappointment, but it might come from disappointment. And meaning that when you've been disappointed, that could be the very thing that points you to Jesus and makes you run to him. That could be the very thing that God uses for you to touch the lives of the people around you. Okay? That could be the very thing. Do not let your disappointments, your sufferings, your hardships be used in vain. Don't try to cover them up and pretend they didn't happen. Face them and Invite them head on. Invite Jesus into the process and the healing process of your life and your heart. And allow him to use that for good and for his glory. And Adrian Rogers says, God loves us just the way we are. But he loves us way too much to leave us that way. Loves us way too much to leave us that way. We're all in process. And he wants us all to keep moving and growing. And there's hope in the pruning process. There's hope in the hardship. There's hope in the valleys. There's hope, the ultimate hope that we have, which is God with us, that God is our redeemer. And some of you guys in that pruning season that you might be in, maybe it's now, maybe it's later, or maybe it's 10 years ago. Some of you guys, that pruning season is actually a preparation season. It's a preparation that God wants to use for your future ministry or for your current ministry or for your future family to do something in and through your life to touch other people's lives. Because you, he calls us to be salt and life of this earth, to represent him who is the light of this world. So I'm going to close with this. Brian Stevenson, who works and advocates for the incarcerated in the States. Um, He's a speaker and author and things like that. He's a really interesting guy. He says, each one of us is more than the worst thing that we've ever done. And I always love walking with people, young people, after they've messed up and being able to tell them that truth. You are more than the worst thing you have ever done. If you've murdered someone, you're more than a murderer. If you've stolen, you're more than a thief. You are more than the worst thing that you've ever done. Meaning that there is nothing that is not enough for God's grace. That God's grace is sufficient for everything. And he always has more for us. And some of you, I'll add to that and say, all of you are more than the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Because sometimes it's easy 
to think of those trials and those sufferings and to bring them and take them as our identity where we hold them and it, it covers us and we walk in this victim state of this happened to me, this happened to me, I must be this because this happened to me. Some of you guys need to be freed from that thought because that's a lie. All of you are more than the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And God sees your life. He loves you the way you are. But he sees your potential. And he sees what he wants to do in you. And he's not done with any of you. He's not done with any of you. So I'm going to get you, if you can close your eyes, I just want to pray over you. And I'm going to pray. I'm just going to open with Isaiah 40, which has been a verse that just breathes so much hope. Isaiah 40, verse 31, but those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. So God, I just want to thank you for every single person here. And I thank you, Jesus, for the hope that we have in you. And God, I thank you that we have hope that no matter what happens in this life, that you are there with us. And I just want to pray over my friends here today, these people over here, your children here today, who may be going through hardship. And I just pray, Jesus, that you would shed your light and your hope onto that situation right now, God. That, Lord Jesus, that they would just feel your arms of love wrap around them, God, in Jesus' name, and that they would just sense you as the good shepherd who comforts them right now. Lord, I just thank you so much for every single person here, and I just pray for every person that's in the pruning process, and maybe it took until this moment right now to realize that it's a pruning process, and that it's not you against them. It's just, it's just making room for them to turn into the person that you've called them to be. And Jesus, I pray that if we're in that season, that we would press into the pruning process. And God, that we wouldn't separate ourselves from you, but that we would abide in you as our vine. And Lord Jesus, that we would want to have you do the work that needs to be done in our hearts so that we could bear the type of fruit that brings glory to who you are on this earth. So God, we just thank you so much for that. And God, I pray that you would challenge every single one of our lives, every single one of our hearts to walk out in what it means to be the light of the earth, the light in this world. And so God, we thank you for that. We thank you for that. And I just pray, Jesus, I pray a blessing over every single person here today. We thank you, Jesus, for your reckless love that will go to great depths and great extents to get to us. So we thank you for that. In your name, amen. Amen.